Good afternoon. The text for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as Joe mentioned, we are starting a new series on Nehemiah. And after we read the text and pray, I'll explain a little bit why I do believe this is a timely series for us. So once again, our text for today's message is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with expectant hearts. For your word planted deeply in our hearts can bear much fruit for your glory and for the benefit of those around us. Lord, we want to not just hear these words, but we want these words to penetrate our souls, to, to shape us, to form us, more like your son, Jesus. To that end, we ask that you will speak to us through your spirit and do what your spirit alone can do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so Nehemiah. So we're starting this series in Nehemiah, and the series is titled Reflections of a Leader. And I believe it's a timely series for several reasons, and that is um, one of the most important things that we can do uh, is to be aware of the season we're in, to be aware of what is happening in and around us. And right now, 
in the world that we find ourselves in, there are three things that have recently happened that is really shaping um, and influencing us as a community. There are things that we may be aware of or we may not have given much thought, but I, leave, but I believe um, they are shaping us and affecting us. And I think it's helpful for us to just take this moment to reflect on what they are. The first is, of course, the pandemic. The pandemic has had a worldwide effect as all of us. I mean, I just kind of need not say it, right? It's, it's very obvious. But the pandemic has affected the church in a particular way because the pandemic um, forced us to think about what it means to be a community. The Christian tradition has always been, our faith has always dictated, one of the pillars of our faith has been that we gather together in person to worship God and to encourage one another. It is prescribed in the scriptures, and we have done it throughout history. In fact, people throughout history have risked their lives at times to gather together in times of persecution. You think of the early church, or you think of the house churches, or you think of churches or believers that gather in places where Christianity is not allowed. Throughout history, the people of God have always gathered together in person. And for the first time in a long time, we realized that we weren't, we weren't doing that. And we were meeting online, and we had the technology now to meet online. And for some of us, it felt not bad. For, I guess, the introverts especially, feeling like, oh, this online thing is not, bad, not a bad thing. I, I don't have to get all dolled up or dressed up or I don't even have to shower if I don't want, right? And I'll just, no one's going to see me. I'll be in my pajamas. I can drink my coffee or, you know, worst case scenario, you're playing a game on the side while you sort of haphazardly hap, listen to the pastor. And for whatever reasons, we found out that a lot of things were happening online, and the church was kind of dealing with this issue of what is the point of gathering in person, right? What does it mean to be embodied? And if we can worship online, should we rethink about what it means to do corporate worship? So those questions were forced upon us through the pandemic. The second thing that's happening, and that is, in the Christian world in which you, if you are part of this church, if you're a member or you're, you are a Christian or self-identify as Christian, this church in particular, because we belong to a denomination called the Christian Reformed Church, we belong within the Christian church to a tribe that is considered, that is called evangelical. So we, we are kind of part of this tribe called evangelicalism, right? And we've learned in, in the past five, six years that what we thought was a somewhat cohesive, unified tribe is actually far more disparate and different than we've ever imagined. We've learned in these past six years through both the way that we dealt with the pandemic and the political happenings of America that not all of us actually mean the same thing when we say we believe in God or we follow Jesus. We've learned in the past few years that the term Christian and the phrase, I follow Jesus, 
means different things to a lot of different people that we didn't realize that it meant different things to those. While we thought we were shoulder to shoulder, we realized there's a chasm between us, right? If you had a conversation about politics or how to deal with COVID, you've experienced some of these conversations. We, we've, we've come to a state where many of the evangelicals were very active in political activism and, and, and the idea of national, sort of nationalism became very entangled with the faith. And some of us agreed and some of us felt very uncomfortable with that. But whatever the reason, whatever the case may be, we found out there are chasms between groups. And lastly, more specifically to our context here at THMCEM, you all are going through a transition yourself, right? I'm sure uh, I've heard a little bit about the history of, of this church and this EM, and I have family that attend, and I've been very active members of this church, like KM. But you're in a season of transition. You've, by God's grace, have made it through without a pastor for a long time, or Pastor um, Ken was doing both services or doing both ministries, and then for a season really didn't have a pastor, and then you had a pastor was really on a temporary basis for a year, and now, you know, you have a pastor who's even a shorter interim pastor, right? So you're, you're kind of going through a transition. You're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be a community? Are we, are we a department, a sub-ministry of this bigger church? Do we need to have a, a more of an um, autonomous identity and, and vision? Or how do we align our visions? How do we support the work of what's happening there, but also feel like God's calling us to something that is for us? You're also going through a transition where there's a lot more of you getting married. There's more babies, a natural church growth method, right? There's more babies popping up. I don't know if that's the right word, but there are more babies happening. I don't know if that's the right phrase either, but there's just more babies. There's more couples there's, and life stages. There are older people. I'm probably the oldest person here. But you're aging and, and staying young. So your, your life stage, the, the diversity of life stage is also changing. You as a demographic are changing. Your size has changed. There's so much about what is happening that seems transitional. And so... More than ever, we need in abundance God's wisdom and discernment. We need to know how to be a church that glorifies God and stays centered on the gospel during, these, uh, during all of these things that are happening around us. Okay? This is the world we live in. This is where we can't just kind of bury our head and just do the same old thing, thinking that it's all going to be the same. Because if you do the likelihood is that things will not work out the way that we imagine. Or we may be out of sync with what God is doing. Okay, So therefore, Nehemiah is a timely word because Nehemiah is a book about um, leadership. It's about discernment. It's about hearing what God wants us to do and following through on it to completion. So we'll talk a little bit more about Nehemiah uh, as the series goes on, but I, I just want to provide a little bit of historical context, and then I want to look at the first four verses today, 
and then just ask you a simple question. I think the application today is very simple. The message is very simple. We're going to do some um, groundwork in laying out some of the context for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a unique book. It's kind of like a memoir. Anyone, anyone fans of memoirs or read memoirs as a genre you like? I, I like biographies. Memoirs are okay. But Nehemiah really reads like a memoir. Is Nehemiah really talking about this uh, period in his life where he feels God is calling him to do something, and he's almost like journaling it? It's not really a journal because I do believe Nehemiah is very intentional about what he writes, and it's not just like free-flowing, you know, uh, stream of consciousness kind of writing, but it's very, very much a, uh, a personal reflection from a person, Nehemiah, who is called who actually senses God calling him to do something specifically in a specific context. And that context is that Nehemiah is, in the first chapters, first four chapters, we find Nehemiah is in a city called Susa. Susa is somewhere where modern Iran is, uh, about 800 miles east of Jerusalem, about 500 miles straight but the journey would be about 800 miles. And Nehemiah is there because the nation of Israel, and I'm going to give you a very kind of a generic because, you know, it's not all that important. You understand the dates and all of this. You can always look it up to a study Bible or commentary. But Nehemiah is in Susa because the nation of Israel, God's people, right? God's people. The story of Israel is the Old Testament, Right, it, it sets the table for the coming Messiah. And I, I, I was told I was having a conversation with one of the members, and did, and she, and this person asked me to really make sure I cover uh, the basics. So I'm not going to assume you're familiar with this, but the Old Testament is really the is God's work is one story, but it's really kind of the foundational work. The Old Testament is the story of the patriarchs how the nation of Israel became a nation, and then sort of the history of Israel leading up to the time of Jesus in the New Testament. Well, the nation of Israel, about 150 years before Nehemiah, about 150 years before Nehemiah, faced a catastrophe. They had been wayward. They did not keep God's statutes and commandments, and therefore, as God, as we'll see in the prayer that Nehemiah prays, God gave them over to their enemies, and they went into a season of exile. About 150 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon at the time, came in with his armies and destroyed the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which was the center of Israel's life as a nation. Okay? Okay. Many people from Israel were taken as exiles to Babylon. And this was all foretold by the prophets. God sent prophets after prophet after prophet. God sent prophets to warn Israel that if you do not turn from your wicked ways, that I will send you into exile. But God also gave a promise that in due time, when you repent, God will bring you back. God will bring you back from the exile. And so there was this both warning and a promise of restoration, right? So Nehemiah, being a pious Jew, would be familiar with some of these 
words, and some of these words of the prophet. And Nehemiah is now in Susa, 150 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, about 100 years before Nehemiah, so 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, Babylon, which was the dominant power at that time, was overcome by another empire, the Persian Empire. Okay? And the king of that Persian Empire, the first sort of the, uh, the king of uh, Persia at the time that when they conquered Babylon, was a person by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus, fulfilling biblical prophecy, allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland. Okay? So about 100 years before Nehemiah, we come onto the book of Nehemiah, the people uh, that were in exile were allowed to go back. Not many return, perhaps um, probably less than 10%, maybe 50,000 or 100,000, the numbers aren't sure, but a small number of the Jews returned to Jerusalem. And the first thing they did, what do you think was the first thing they did? They rebuilt the temple. And they rebuilt the temple. And the temple was done. And once the temple was done, they began to reinstitute some of the statutes. They began to reform their ways. And they began to start building the wall. So if you look at the book of Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, the wall started being built. But in Ezra 4, we find out that the, op the opponent, the op this is like a history lesson. Just bear with me. This will be only in the first sermon part, okay? So they started building the wall, but as the wall was being built, they had opposition, and these opponents of the reconstruction reported to the king that they were plotting something. And so the king at the time, Octaxerxes, the very king that Nehemiah is cupbearer to, he sends a decree saying, stop rebuilding the wall. Put it, stop it, stop it. So the wall kind of stopped and possibly was breached again. Okay? So Nehemiah, now we come to Nehemiah. Now we come to Nehemiah in his days. It's been about 150 years since the fall of Jerusalem about 100 years since the temple has been built. And Nehemiah was probably born in captivity, born in exile. Somehow he moved his way up to become a cupbearer. And we'll talk more about why that's important. But he moved up. Cupbearer was not a menial, kind of like, it's not a waiter position. It's not bringing the wine, like, I'll take, uh, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon along with a Pinot, and you kind of bring it. That's not what a cupbearer was. Cupbearer was probably the most trusted advisor of a king because... The cupbearer did what? Tasted the wine because assassinations and poisons were very common. So the cupbearer was always close to the king, tasted his food, tasted his wine. If he didn't keel over in a few minutes, the king then partook of the food and the drink. But because the cupbearer was very close to the king all the time, and the cupbearer's Interests were aligned with the kings. He was also one of the king's most trusted advisors. So that's who Nehemiah was, okay? Now we come to today's text, and, and the message is very simple, and I, I hope this is something that will begin to stir in you um, something close to what Nehemiah experienced. Nehemiah is in Susa. He's doing his work, and a group of men come from Jerusalem. Now, remember, how, how far is Jerusalem? It's about 500 miles straight, and about 800-mile journey through the roads, okay? It probably took about four months, people estimate. 
So this, these group of men, one of them named Hanani, who is, is referred to as a brother, comes from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah goes to that group and says, how are the Jews doing? How are my kindred brothers? How is the nation of Israel? How are God's people doing? Okay? And Hanani says, they're not doing well. They're not doing well. They are distressed, troubled, and in shame. Troubled and in shame. Why? Why are they troubled and in shame? Because the walls are breached, the walls are broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. Now, you'll see that phrase, the gates. If you read the book of Nehemiah, which I encourage you to do, if you read, if you, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that the phrase, the gates have been burned with fire, appear about four times. Okay? It's important. The people are in shame because the walls are down and the gates are burned. In those days, if you're a city that didn't have walls, you were vulnerable to anyone. Anyone could come and attack you and raid you. And their religious life at the temple could be easily disrupted. That's why Ezra started building the wall, but it was halted midway. And now, 100 years later, or some 80 years later, the wall's still not built. In fact, Hananiah says the wall is broken and the gates are burned. And Nehemiah response is both immediate and visceral. He says immediately he fell to his knees with weeping and fasting and prayer. And then he makes this wonderful prayer. Now, I'm going to read you the four verses again, and I just want to kind of lay out what I want us to hear today from this text. My primary um, reason for doing a series on Nehemiah for this church at this time is I want you to care about what is happening here. Okay? And I want you to feel a sense of God leading you to participate in doing something. I, I, I do believe God is doing something. And I want you to be part of what God is doing here. I want you to participate as Nehemiah, Nehemiah does in the rebuilding of the wall. But I want you to see how Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets this sense to rebuild the wall. I want you to see the foundations, the, the, the recipe of Nehemiah's activism and action. Because it's just, it doesn't come out of the blue. There is a formula that is kind of presented here. It's a recipe that is very common. It's not uniquely Christian, but it's one that has been repeated throughout history when small and big works have been done. I'm, I'm like, um, I'm not being as clear as I like to be, so bear with me. Let me try to explain what I mean. Okay, I'm going to read you the first four verses, and I want you to um, see this formula real quick. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th years, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hannah, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jew who escaped, who has survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Therein lies a recipe for how some of the greatest works in history have started. Okay? And that is, um, it begins with awareness. It continues with empathy and compassion. And it concludes with action. Okay? So once again, it begins with awareness. It continues with empathy or compassion. The awareness triggers something. You become aware of something, and then that awareness triggers something in you, and that once you're triggered, you take to action to either address whatever it was that triggered you, that need, right? So, for example, you take, you take a, let's take this nonprofit that I read about. I was doing a lot of Googling and researching, and I'm going to end with this wonderful ministry that is amazing. It's not now, it's back in the early 20th century, but there's a girl in St. Louis, third grade. She's in the playground, and she notices another little girl doesn't have a coat, and it's November, it's getting chilly, and she looks cold. So she comes home and she says, Mom, she needs a coat. Awareness. She feels bad for the girl. Empathy and action. So the mom and the girl go buy a coat, a couple of gloves, and they drop it off at the school. And this little movement over the course of 15, 20 years began to serve over 4,000 people, right, with coats in St. Louis. Okay? We think of other movements. Think of Habitat for Humanity, right? A Bible scholar and a farmer in Georgia has a seed of idea for building housing, right? Or think about uh, Doctors Without Borders. 1973, there's a group of physicians who feel that the Red Cross was not impartial enough. They see the need. There's too much bureaucracy to be able to help, so they form, 13 of them form this new movement, Doctors Without Borders. Right? Whiffcliff, China Island Mission, a lot of these great movements. And it doesn't have to be a movement. It could be something in your own life, right? You see a need. You, you feel compassion. God moves you. You become aware of it. You, you, you're moved by it, and then you move to action. And that's the pattern. It's a recipe. And it's a recipe that's presented to us in Nehemiah. The awareness is something that triggers this, right? And the awareness for Nehemiah begins with what? A question, inquiry. He asked Hananiah, how are the people doing? So I want to challenge you. If God is going to make you move in a certain direction, it starts with perhaps there's something on the periphery of your mind that you've always thought about. Perhaps you've noticed that there's always these kids that are in your neighborhood and it's after school and they seem very alone or, or they seem very vulnerable. Or perhaps you notice that there is food insecurity or you notice that there is high 
crime or whatever the case is. You, you have this peripheral sort of awareness of what it is. But the way we increase our awareness is by asking, by inquiring. We, something triggers us, piques our interest, and then we follow through by inquiring, right? So what I would like you to think about is what are some of the things that are happening at here at THMCEM that are piquing your interest about the future of this ministry? And what are the questions that you want to ask and explore? And the second thing is, once the awareness is there, this is a God thing, but sometimes when you become aware of something, it hits you hard. It cuts you to your soul. It's like it's, like it's God's way of creating um, a desire in your heart that he wants to fulfill. There are certain things that once you become aware of it, you just can't get it out of your mind. This is how a lot of movements happen. Perhaps, like I said, it could start with something in your home. Like you notice, you know, um, your parents are struggling with something and, and, and something about what's happening in your family dynamics cuts you to your heart and you can't get it out of your mind. Maybe there's anger. Maybe there's um, betrayal or lack of trust or maybe there's broken dynamics in your family and, and for whatever reason, once you've become aware of it, you just can't get it out of your mind. Or maybe something's happening around you, right? Think about all of the movements that have happened. Illiteracy, women's suffrage, um, all of the medical advancement. A lot of these things happen with people becoming aware of something. And once they become aware, they can't put it away. It hits them to their core. It's as if the tears that they're crying from a broken heart becomes the water for the soil for this work to flourish in. Maybe this is hyperbole. Maybe this is something that pastors tend to do. They sometimes tend to overspeak. This is the most important. This is the most important. But I, I do believe this to a degree, and I pray this a lot in my life. This has been one of my core prayers, is if you live your entire life and not have one of these things that you want to give yourself to, like if you don't have one of these, once you become aware of something and you never felt the experience of what it means to want to do something about it, that's an impoverished life. I pray that all of us We'll have that moment of Nehemiah when we hear something that it touches us so deeply that we can't let it go. And the final thing is action. We don't just hear about it and become aware of it. We act on it. And the first thing Nehemiah does is what? He lays out a plan to go and rebuild the wall. Amen? No. And I will do that often. I always kind of throw out red herrings. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't lay out a plan. He doesn't go and start, he doesn't start making bricks. Now, hear this. This is important. And I'm preaching a little bit long today so, because the praise was a little bit short. I, I feel a little bit more liberty. So bear with me. If you want me to preach shorter, have the praise team sing a little longer next week. That's a joke. But Nehemiah doesn't start building the bricks right away. What does he do? He prays. He fasts. Do you know how long it took Nehemiah once they started the building project to actually finish the wall? This is incredible. Do you know what the book tells us? Remember, it was taking years, hundreds of years, as well as laid in ruins. It took him 
52 days. 52 days. And you know what? Those 52 days, half the time they were building, half the time they were guarding their, guarding their work with swords. And it still took them 52 days. But here, check this out. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You don't have your Bibles, right? That's right. Everything's online now. But if you look at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 1, what month is it? It's in verse 1. It's the month of Kislev, right? Kislev is approximately our November, December. Let's call it December, okay? If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with the month of Nisan. What month is Nisan? That's approximately our April. So from the time that Nehemiah hears this and the time that he encounters the king and makes a request, it's four months. Ballpark, 120 days. He spends almost two and a half times what he actually spent building the wall, praying, fasting, and weeping over the situation. You want to know how God's going to build THMCEM? We don't start just making radical changes. We don't start saying, well, we need, we need a guitar. That's, that's what we need. We, or we need a better preacher. Or we need you know, to get bulletins and more monitors. No, it begins with a heart that feels heavy with a desire to participate in what God's doing. And then it begins with prayer. Prayer becomes the foundation of everything we do. This is the recipe, and this is what Nehemiah encounters. I pray that this is our recipe as well. Um, I want to just read this one paragraph as, as a closing. There's a ministry that exemplifies this pattern. This, I want to show you this recipe in, in action. Um, one of my spiritual mentors, not in person, but through her writing, the person that has probably one of three people that have shaped me as a Christian um, more profoundly and deeply than, than anyone else, one of the three top, is a, is a missionary by the name of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was born in Ireland in the late 1800s. And then she went to Japan for a season as a missionary and then ended up going to India. And in India, she was an itinerant missionary. She traveled with a group of people going to different cities and trying to proclaim the gospel. But in 1901, something happened that changed the trajectory of her life. A little girl named Pearl Eyes, Pearl Eyes, seven-year-old, her father was a scholar, but he passed away, and because of the circumstances, the mother had dedicated pearl eyes to the temple, which meant that this person, this little girl pearl's eyes, was going to probably become um, married to the gods, in essence becoming, for lack of a better word, a temple prostitute. Pearl eyes escapes. She runs away, goes back home. The temple servants follow her, her mother gives her away again. She goes back. And now they're watching over her, and they're going to perform the ceremony soon. Pearl eyes, and this is miraculous. The way Amy Carmichael describes it 
It's like the angel of the Lord guiding her. Poor Eli runs away again. This little seven-year-old ends up finding her way to Amy Carmichael in a, in a very providential way. And Amy Carmichael, once she discovers what happens, writes this. And I want you to see the pattern. It says, the, the child, paralyzed, told us things that darkened the sunlight. It was impossible to forget those things. Wherever we went after that day, we were constrained to gather facts about what appeared a great secret traffic in the souls and bodies of young children. And we searched for some way to save them and could find no way. And now great urgency was upon us. We thirsted for the strong sucker of prayer for the children. We were still itinerating, itinerating, camping in different parts of the district, seldom for long in one place, learning all we could wherever we went, becoming daily more burdened. It took years. Once you become aware, sometimes some things touch your soul so deeply that you can't shake it. She writes, it was impossible to forget these things. And then for the next 52 years, Amy Carmichael, without ever leaving India, served the little children. She became known as Ama to hundreds, hundreds of girls, forsaken, abandoned. But it began with the simple formula. Awareness, compassion, empathy, and action. And for us as Christians, action and prayer. May that be what we follow as we think about the future of THMCEM. Let's pray. Father God, um, what I didn't do well, perhaps, in presenting this, Lord, I know that your spirit can do effectively through touching our hearts. So I ask now that you would make us inquire and become aware of what's happening here in THMCEM, but also outside of us. And I pray that there will be some things that we become aware of that sears our souls and brings us to tears. And that we would be moved to action to address that which you place in our hearts. To that end, we ask that you would do these things through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray.